Hi everyone and welcome to Jane's Talks. I'm really excited today, really, really excited. Um, Mike McCarg, or Science Mike, is back with us today. Um, welcome, Mike. It's really great to have you back. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me on, James. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Um, Mike's just released um, a new book uh, called Finding God in the Waves. Um, I've just been reading it. It's absolutely amazing. So we're going to be talking about that today and um, maybe a few sciencey questions as well. So um, going to be very exciting. Um, so yeah, Mike, tell us a bit about the book and uh, what it's about and, and where did the title come from as well? Uh, sure. Well, Finding God in the Waves is kind of uh, a narrative it's, a, it's half memoir. It's a weird structured book, but the first half is my story of uh, losing my faith, you know, from my Baptist upbringing and becoming an atheist and going into that whole process, what it's like to take apart your faith mm. and how someone who believes in God goes about not believing in God anymore. Uh, it's a story I've told a lot on podcasts. I've told it on stage. Uh, but I had an opportunity in book form to kind of go deeper into the story, deeper into my doubts, help people understand the journey more than I've ever been able to before. But that's only half the book, because at the end of the first half of the book, I have this incredible mystical experience where I felt like I was in the presence of God. It was really indescribable, but I tried to describe it in this book. And the second half of the book is a topical approach where I look at different components of the Christian faith, God, prayer, Jesus, the Bible, the church, and I explore those topics using the lens of science because for someone who lost their faith in God, the Bible has no authority, theology doesn't speak to anything that's measurable, and so how do you make sense of and contextualize faith in purely scientific terms. And that's what I attempt to do in the second half of the book to explain mm -hmm. how I reconciled my experience with God with my scientific understanding of the universe. And so the title, Finding God in the Waves, plays to several things. One, to the fact that literally I stood on a beach and as waves washed my feet, had an experience where I felt like I was in the presence of God. But after that experience, I learned to find God in electromagnetic waves and sound waves and different physical phenomenon mm. endemic to our universe. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great title. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing story as well. There's so much good the, stuff. The original book. title for the book was Split Brained, which if you've read the book, uh, you get. <laughs> yes. But uh, it, it didn't make sense for anyone who had not already read the book. Right. And uh, really happy with where we ended up finally with the title. Yeah, yeah, it is It is wonderful. Um, one of the things that sprung out to me when I was reading it, um, there's a part of the book, and it's in the first half of the book, where you talk about um, you know, when you became an atheist. And, and yet, for two years, you kind of kept it a secret. And... You, even from your own family, and you were participating in, in a church, um, and you led your eldest daughter to Christ, um, and you know you're doing all these and praying for people, and all these things were happening, and nobody suspected anything. Um, what? So, I mean, what was that experience like? I mean, what kind of emotions and conflicts were you were you feeling when that was going on? I was confusing and conflicted. Uh... 
felt duplicitous a lot. I felt ashamed, uh, not of my doubt, but of pretending to play in a role that I didn't believe in. Um, and I had to just bottle all that up inside. I, I kind of sought refuge on the internet talking to other atheists and skeptics anonymously. Because um, there are a lot of people, at least you can find on the internet, that are doing a similar masquerade. But it's isolating, it's lonely, it's, I dare even say it can be depressing. Um, you know, I kind of recovered from the loss of God after a few months. Um, but that didn't fix the sense of loneliness and isolation. Um, you know, it's almost like um, mm. if you've ever, if you've ever, you know, pretended to have tea with children at a tea party. Uh, it's like sitting at a tea party where everyone thinks there's actually tea, and you realize there's not, and you wonder what will happen to them if you point out that there is no tea. So you just keep pretending to drink out of the cup, and imagine that how absurd that feels. Hmm. Uh, and now do that every Sunday when you're at church, and you're going, "What am I doing? There is no tea." Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It must have been. Must have been really difficult. Um, what I mean, what I mean, you obviously were going to church and you were serving in church, and you know, in the band and, and other things, and. Um, what role did a church play in your life at that, at that time? Was it because obviously when you're going, you have community, you meet people, and um, there's things happening. So, what kind of role did church play in your life at that point? It was my community. Um, I mean, that's what church is like best at, right? Mm. When church goes well, yeah. uh, it's people that. Um, celebrate your promotion with you or sit with you when times are hard um, that rally around you while uh, you bring a new baby into the world and uh, to do the same when a loved one passes and so the church had always been the only community I'd known it's a lifelong Southern Baptist uh, for a Baptist, I had a lot of non-Christian friends, but my closest friends were, almost without exception, religious people, almost without exception, Baptists. So um, I tried to nurture and foster other relationships. I found that my uh, way I understood my coworkers, for example, changed. I started to see a profound form of spirituality among many of my friends who didn't attend church, but were still mm. in some way drawn to divine ideas. Um, and from an atheist perspective, their faith seemed at least less absurd than the one I'd grown up in. Um, yeah. That, that's where the fear of discovery comes in. Yeah. For a church yeah. person who Absolutely. loses their faith, is in a lot of ways you become aware of how conditional those relationships are. They are based on a shared agreement, a premise that you accept certain ideas about God, and I didn't anymore. Um, and that made me feel very vulnerable and very fearful. Yeah, it must have been. Um, I can't imagine what it must have been like. Um, but I mean, one thing that fascinated me was that 
you could literally play the role of a Christian in the church and doing all doing and saying all the right things, praying for people and leading people to faith without actually believing in the thing you were talking about. And it kind of scared me how easy that was. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I mean, what do you think that says about the, the, the Christian faith and what being a Christian is? I don't think it. I don't think it says anything bad about Christianity. I honestly don't. I think that only seems bad to Christians right. because they think there's something unique or divine or spiritual oh. about um, that experience, which there may be. But my point is, with a sufficient education, I think you can pretend to be anything. Uh, so. Just because I didn't believe in God anymore, I, I didn't like forget the melody to praise songs. I didn't forget the the verbal patterns of prayers. I didn't forget uh, the arguments in favor of the Bible. I just rejected them, but I didn't forget them. And so if you're just careful of what you say, it's very, very easy to pretend to be something you actually were. And I think anyone who moved away from home and then goes home for Thanksgiving knows exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. You can, without too much effort, put on an older version of yourself just to get through a social experience. And that's that's what I was doing. So I don't think that like undermines any claims of Christianity. I think hmm. it just speaks to human psychology. Oh no, I wasn't saying I wasn't I don't I wasn't arguing that it did. I was really trying to just get under the skin of it I was just um, because it yeah I mean I'm, I'm somebody I, I've I've had I mean I'm not an atheist I've never been an atheist but I've had doubts and questions and I you know I always have doubts and questions about my faith I think that's a healthy thing to do because it helps you grow but I've had days where I've gone into church and I've not felt like a Christian at all and I felt completely disconnected from God and yet I've just been able to play that that role of just, you know, singing along and saying all the right things and right. looking like everything's okay, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's just good. It's lucky that God is bigger than church and bigger than, you know, a religion, I suppose, because um, you can get underneath all of that eventually. Um, yeah, so... Um, okay. Um, I mean... This sounds almost like a redundant question, but do you think there are others out there who had the same, who having, who are either having the same experience of you as you, as you had, or similar experiences? Um, I mean, what would you want to say to them, to people who are going through that kind of thing? You're not alone. You're not the only one. You might feel like you're the only one. Not only are you not the only one, you're probably not the only one in your church. This is such a common now um, so don't be so afraid it's not the end of the world um, do you think that God's existence isn't predicated on your belief so have the freedom mm. to explore without fear because it won't change the underlying reality I love that God's existence and the penalty for being wrong is not that big if you believe, if you end up with a mistaken belief that God exists, then at the end there's nothing but nothing. And mm. if you decide God doesn't exist, 
that God actually does exist. I mean, there are some Christians who have some pretty doomsday afterlife scenarios based mm-hmm. on that belief, but there's so many different faith traditions with different claims about what it takes to reach heaven. How do we know which one is right? So there's already a chance if you're wrong, there's a high chance you're wrong if there's a God about which God or which belief system is right. So uh, I don't think the stakes are as high as we make them out to be. And I think that if, if God is anything like what most religions depict, this, this being, this, this entity with some kind of will, uh, if that God is at all benevolent, I have a hard time imagining that souls are spent, are sent to eternal conscious torment just because they read the cards wrong. So uh, I'd, I'd kind of appeal to the Douglas Adams phrase, don't panic. Um, you know, make sure you have your towel and don't panic. That's very wise. And I love that phrase, um, God's existence is not, is not kind of dependent on your belief in him. <laughs> um, uh, you know, that, um, whether you believe in him or not, you know, if he exists, he's still going to exist. Um, yeah, and I, and I completely agree with you about about that view of God, about, you know, the whole kind of, there are some kind of, there's this terror God kind of, you know, like this kind of guy who's just waiting to send you to burn off, burn up in some, in hell, you know, forever. Um, because you didn't follow the right rules, you know, and um, which doesn't, I mean, yeah, which doesn't really make sense to me. I mean, like Love Wins was a really good, a really good book for for that and helped me understand that better. A lot of people as well. Um, you know, that actually we get a choice, you know, and that actually just because you didn't choose God when you, when you, were, when you were here doesn't mean that you won't get to choose him after you're dead. You know, and and actually, if he's a god of love and grace and unconditional love, um, then he's not just going to maliciously just toss you aside into hell or give up on you. Um, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, having gone through that process of you know becoming a you know being a Christian, then losing your faith and becoming an atheist. Um, and then coming back to God um, through science. Um, do you think your faith is, obviously your faith will be different now than it was, but do you think that your relationship with God, your understanding of God has broadened and deepened as a result? I would be tempted to say it has broadened and deepened. It certainly has from my perspective. Uh, I'm, I'm cautious using such language because I don't want to imply other peoples who believe what I used to believe about God, that their knowledge of God is more shallow or more narrow than mine. Mm. Uh, but from my own perspective, my faith has certainly both broadened and deepened uh, in where it is now. Because I, I've basically gone from you know, a fundamentalist, systematic view of God to a contemplative, mystical view of God. And in that way, my faith is much less about mastery or understanding of God and much more about 
trusting God and loving God. That is through loving God that we come to some knowledge of God. And um, it's pretty different. I mean, in many ways, my faith is um, more more aligned with uh, Christianity before the Enlightenment. Um, mm. But but that's because I've seen these studies, these brain scans that say, in many ways, authentic faith is a nonverbal, non-analytical brain state. And in, in some ways, the Greek Orthodox are right that uh, we start to profane God when we push God through the gates of logic. Yeah. Yeah, I, do, I, I agree. I, it's, it's ironic, I think. I mean, I, again, like you, I don't want to be putting down other people's interpretations of faith and other people's experiences of God at all or devaluing them. Um, but I would, I think there's a, having gone through like traditional evangelical Christianity and then come out the other side in a sense into a more kind of, um, I want to say progressive, but that's probably a, I don't want to put, I don't want to make other things seem not progressive, but, um, to a more liberal understanding, a more, um, an understanding more like yours in terms of faith uh, and of Jesus, a broader, bigger kind of uh, understanding. I think, for me, it kind of always was ironic that um, the evangelical church didn't, was always a bit kind of uh, sceptical of science, a bit sceptical of, um, you know, talking about um, six-day creation and stuff and creation being 4,000 years ago and all this kind of thing. And yet, and it was all in a kind of, very analytical, almost logical, scientific kind of way, but yet almost dismissive of science in some ways. I just thought that, I always thought that was quite ironic. Um, yeah, it's definitely based on a, an enlightenment, uh, you know, list of proposition uh, view of knowledge. It's a similar epistemology. It just rejects the conclusions of the epistemology while maintaining the approach. If we could make this a, you know, a very nerdy podcast for a few seconds. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a nerd. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, I mean, when you, I mean, obviously you do a lot of, a lot of study and a lot of reading and a lot of uh, talking about science now. Um, when, when you read about like new discoveries I can't think of an example offhand, but um, discoveries about the universe, discoveries about um, our bodies or our brains or whatever, like some big scientific revelation. Does that does that moment kind of lead you to God or connect you with God? Absolutely. The story of science is the story of God to me. When we use science to study the universe, we study God. When we use science to study ourselves, we study God, at least the image of God. Um, mm. I view scientific insights with equal reverence to that I view spiritual revelations. Um, both those I see in people I know and those 
that are recorded in the Bible. All these things are signposts uh, that that show us the way to the divine. So when I hear about a discovery of gravity waves for the first time, confirmation that that's a real physical phenomenon, mm. you hear the voice of God, the mighty shout in the word that started the cosmos. Of course, I'm speaking very poetically here. Mm. Um, when when I read about exoplanets, I'm reminded of a universe that is immensely creative and therefore a God that is as well. Um, and those things propel me to a state of awe and reverence and worship um, because the story of science is the story of God. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, I've had this kind of, the last few years I've learned more about science, um, which kind of, when I, was, when I was at school I wasn't interested in science at all, um, it was just, I had a bad teacher, um, who made it pretty boring, and um, seeing Rob Bell's Everything is Spiritual, the first Everything is Spiritual about 10 years ago, was kind of my route into wanting to find out more about science again, and the more I found out about science the more I kind of my you know the more God kind of got bigger and bigger and bigger you know and um, just changed everything. Um, so yeah, I mean I think the more we, the more we learn about science, the more we, yeah the more we the more we're kind of lost in wonder at God. I think that's certainly my experience anyway. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, so what's um, what's your real heart and desire for the book? I mean what. What, what would your hope be for the book? I would hope that people who suffer from the kind of doubt that makes them miserable would hear my story and be encouraged and maybe foresee the next few steps on their own journey. Uh, I'm not trying to get them to follow in my footsteps or to view God as I do, but merely to show them an example of how one survives and ultimately thrives through a faith transition. So the book, most of all, is for people who aren't satisfied with their understanding of God right now. That could be people who believe in God, but have a lot of doubt. That could be people who don't believe in God, but have some longing they can't quell. Um, mm. And in both cases, those people are dissatisfied. Those people are maybe even depressed sometimes. So that's who the book is for. But there's also, if that's the main event, uh, uh, there's an audience I'd like to invite to the conversation. And that's Christians and atheists who want to understand each other better, who want to have better conversations, mm. who want to uh, have healthy relationships with someone on the other side of that uh, theistic divide. Um, because what I've, I've hoped to do is if you're a Christian who reads Finding God in the Waves, by the end of that book you would understand how someone can be a reasonable, kind human being and believe that God does not exist. And at the same time, that an atheist could read the book and understand how and why people need faith 
and how Christianity can be a healthy expression of faith according to science. And so that's kind of the stage I'm setting. The first, the first and most important thing is people who doubt, uh, people who aren't satisfied in their current understanding of God, but also to people who just want to have better conversations across religious lines. Mm. That's good, yeah, and it is a great book, and uh, yeah, um, it really is. I hope, I really hope it does. I'm sure it will do that, you know. I, I, um, it was, um, it's a powerful story, and there's so much, so much in there, you know. So, um, yeah, um, so yeah, we couldn't have science mic on the podcast without a bit of science, um, so, um. <laughs> Um, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, by the way, if you if you don't know why he's called Science Mike, it's because he has a podcast called Ask Science Mike. Um, um, so that's why. And some people don't even know. I'll be honest. Before I actually emailed you, emailed him to ask him on the podcast, I only knew Mike as Science Mike. Um, <laughs> right. It's a common thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, yeah. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go and look at a bit bit of science now. Um, so, yeah, one thing that that's always kind of fascinated me is that there's some processes, like scientific processes, and forgive me, I'm not a scientist, and I haven't read as much as I should have done, but um, that we've deemed kind of supernatural in the past, which are now kind of, we see are actually scientific processes, you know, that things that just happen in the universe or in our bodies or, or whatever. Um what do you? What's your kind of like conception of the supernatural and um, the scientific, and you know what happens in and how those two kind of might be linked, and how we maybe assimilate some. Sometimes we assimilate things to the supernatural that are just natural phenomena that we don't understand. Well, as far as we can tell in science today, everything we ascribe to the supernatural is ultimately some physical material process. Um, I think the natural supernatural divide is an anachronistic holdover from um, ways we've tried to understand the world in the past. Um, Because the way the physical world actually operates is pretty damn magical. Mm. Yeah, um, I, I don't see a difference between uh, people who are made of spirit and matter that is literally an embodiment of energy through a pervasive invisible field called the Higgs field. Like for some reason that we don't understand yet in science, some particles slow down below light speed and in doing so gain mass and we're already mystical beings um and and in ways we don't fully understand yet now we may in the future i'm not i'm not making a god of the gaps argument um but when people try to tell me about the supernatural which i'm agnostic about i don't know if there are or not supernatural unseen realms or forces um but if the supernatural were to interface with the natural world it would leave measurable 
effects. It would, we, even if we couldn't study the supernatural directly, if a ghost appeared in front of someone, for us to see that ghost, it would have to be emitting photons, and we could measure and record those photons. It's the only way human eyes can record information. So um, I don't mm. think we need the supernatural to believe in God or things spiritual. Um, mm. I think I'm probably a materialist, um, but I am also a Christian. And I believe in God, but I do so in the context of a magnificent physical universe. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, because I always look at the healings of Jesus and I've thought, you know what, maybe, maybe all Jesus did was just, like, set in motion what, a natural process in the body, which we're capable of doing, but just haven't learned how to manipulate yet, you know. And then when Jesus rises from the dead and kind of disappears and appears, like atoms can do that, you know. So maybe he just kind of, like, was in a different atomic state than he was before, you know. So I just kind of, I don't know, I always kind of think about that, but I have no idea. Yeah, walking on water, you know, all those things are interesting. I, I primarily look at them through a literary or poetic lens, unless as fact claims. Um, but... Um, yeah, that's what I mean. I'm not out to like scientifically validate or authenticate events in the Bible. I am out to see how I can be transformed by them. So, and it's a subtly different perspective. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so one one kind of concept that's argued by a lot of Christians is this idea that we're born fundamentally flawed. You know, that we're all kind of broken, that we're all, you know, um, um, imperfect and, um, you know, screwed up kind of thing. Um, what's your kind of perspective on that? And what are that, I mean, what would that scientifically look like in terms of the brain and its desires and its needs? You know, because a lot of Christians say that our desires are broken, that we desire the wrong things. And that that's some kind of, and that's, part of our disconnection from God. So what, I'm just, I'm just wondering out loud almost about the science of that, what that would look like in our brains, maybe. Well, I don't, I don't think that we're broken. Um, I think that we have been designed to adapt to a truly staggering diversity of environmental conditions. I mean, there's no species on the planet, at least not macro-scale species, that survives in so many different biomes and climates as humans do. Mm. There's no species on the planet um, that can deal as readily with hot and cold, feast and famine as Homo sapiens. And I think... When the Bible talks about brokenness and separation from God, it is talking about something real. And that something is the fact that our consciousness emerges from hundreds of structures in our brains which have different agendas and impulses and desires. Mm. Part of your brain wants to pair bond with someone and exist in a monogamous state, and another part of your brain wants to copulate with almost anyone, right? Nice. Part of your brain 
wants to look good and be healthy. Part of your brain wants to indulge in fatty foods and high carbohydrate foods because who knows when the next famine will come? Who knows when the rains will stop? And so in a pre-scientific era, uh, our faith spoke into the challenge of being organisms which have competing impulses, some of which are self-serving and some of which are communally driven. And the great, one of the great wisdoms of Christianity is to say that often choosing a communal impulse, even when you don't want to, is better for you and better for the culture. And through that process of intentional surrender and sacrifice, you may find yourself in the presence of God. Mm. And that is something that is completely and neurologically valid. We find that when people focus outwardly, when they expand their concern beyond themselves, that the further they expand their concern, the more likely they are to experience a feeling of closeness or presence of God. Mm. And so I just think we're talking about different metaphors over time and different historical contexts, all pointing to the same fundamental realities of the human experience. Uh, and so what I try to avoid doing is, is forcing a first century author to meet modern scientific understandings, to, to, to push modernism back onto that text and instead meet it on its terms to do my best to approach that text with a, a, a good, informed historical perspective so that I can figure out, so I can find the greatest degree of solidarity with the author and find what he may have to tell me across centuries about my own struggle to know and serve God. Mm. Oh, that's awesome. That's really awesome. Um... Yeah, I mean, it's always struck me how, yeah, especially in the Old Testament, you see how, like, there's, like, this stuff, like, and God came down and wiped out this civilization, you know, and he punished them for their, you know, whatever they'd done wrong. And and I actually think that there's a lot of it that could be, basically, that's how they, that that's how they are, that's how they understood things then. That's how they, if God loved you, if God had favor on your people, you conquered your enemies. You know, in uh, Pete N's most recent book, um, actually the book before his most recent, and uh, the Bible tells me so, you know, he talks about how archaeologically it looks like a lot of the conquest stories on the Promised Land were greatly exaggerated, that these were much smaller battles, that nobody got wiped out completely. But later when they recorded those experiences, trying to, to have some sense of peace in exile, they talked about a time when God loved them and they won all their battles. That was the language of the day to say, God loves me. Wow. So that's what I say. When we view these texts in their historic context, yeah. a lot of the brutality is removed, but not all the brutality. The fact is... Some people at some point genuinely believed God told them they could have this land and they tried to take it by force. Um, and instead of looking at that as some affirmation of violence or imperialism, I now view that as a critique 
of the kind of poor choices we can make if we believe that God is endorsing an immoral act. Yeah. And that's what I mean. Like it's it's actually the Bible is 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 too beautiful and sophisticated and well preserved an ancient text to treat it so simplistically as we tend to do in modern Christianity. Uh, the book is far more nuanced uh, than that. It records not an idea about God, but many competing ideas and debates about God, as, as Pete articulates so well in his book. Yeah, that is, yeah, absolutely. We, we often read these things and say, oh, God, look what God will do if you don't follow him, you know, like, and it's, yeah, but they're kind of talking about, you know, it's a very different culture that they were writing to you know when bad things happen they often like said oh god is punishing you when you had a victory you kind of said oh god rewarded us you know god gave us victory you know it was which we do that now we yeah. got a parking spot and we say that god opened it for us yeah yeah so exactly that's my point this is what we find ourselves in these stories that's what i love about the bible is we look into its pages and we find a reflection of ourselves looking back mm, yeah absolutely Brilliant, brilliant. Across different cultures, language, and millennia, we find ourselves looking back. The same story, the same sense of exile and longing to return resonates across the centuries. Yeah. This is why Moses is such a powerful figure even today, why Jesus is such a powerful figure, and frankly, while we all love Harry Potter, it's that same mm. sense that over the hill on the other side of transformation is the life we've been waiting for. Yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. And we're getting philosophical on this one. Yeah, that's right. We started off with science and now we're talking philosophy. Man, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> love it. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, um, so, yeah, I had another, I've got another couple of science-y questions. Um, astronomer, um, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong probably, but Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's exactly correct. Um, Astrophysicist. Yeah, that's right. Um, he, he recently said that one day it may be possible to simulate the universe, meaning that there's a possibility that some species may well do that one day, and that therefore we might actually be living in such a universe. Um, now, you know, people often talk about social media not being real, you know, like the online world isn't really real. Um, but yet it has a kind of, it has a real impact on people's thoughts and emotions and experiences and relationships. So like, I mean, for example, like, you know, um, I, I've never met you in person, but I feel like I got to know you a bit because we've talked online. Um, so what's your thoughts on this? So what's your definition of, what's real and what isn't real. Wow. That's <laughs> deeply philosophical. First of all, simulation theory um, is a fascinating idea. I don't know if I'm as convinced of it as many others are because I'm not entirely certain it's possible to simulate a universe. And if it is, each nested universe must by necessity be smaller than the containing universe um, because you can't put more information 
thanks to Planck time and Planck length, we can't actually stuff more information into the universe than there is in the universe itself. Um, in terms of what is real and what is not, uh, real is whatever is happening in physics. Uh, real is the manifestation of subatomic particles and fields and whatever unknown mechanic lies beneath that that composes our reality. And uh, here's the downside. Absolutely no one, no human, experiences reality as it is. We experience a model of reality. Our brain creates using sensory information and our memories and, frankly, our language. Um, and it, it's fascinating the degree to which our language changes the way our brain builds this model. In cultures where there is no word for blue, uh, people can't pick out the color blue different than being the color green. And in cultures where people have more words for different shades of green, they can literally pick out more subtle, distinct shades than Westerners can who have fewer words for green. Isn't that mm. fascinating? Our, our yeah. visual processing system is affected by the labels we use for things. Wow, that's, that's mind-blowing. So I, I hold to two things. One, there is an objective reality that we can measure, especially with scientific instruments. And two, no person's mental map of reality exactly matches reality, and our memories match reality even less so. And this propels me to a sense of humility. I cannot be too certain about my ideas or my opinions or my perceptions because they emerge from 86 billion neurons trying to sketch on the back of a napkin mm. a map of the globe, right? Yeah, yeah. How accurate is that process? Not very. Mm. Um, I'm looking out a window in a hotel right now and I see a lot of cars. And if I look away, how well could I estimate the number of cars I just saw? Not well. Um, this is why I love science. It lets us have human beliefs that we can put more confidence in. Um, but even then, every so often we figure out that in really fundamental ways, the models we've built together in science, using scientific instruments, have bigger gaps than we've realized. And that means the only reasonable path is one of tremendous humility through this life and of grace to other people. Because if my map of the world is that fuzzy, so then is theirs. And how deeply can I fault people when they're wrong? Hmm. Yeah. It's funny how a discussion on science keeps going philosophical, isn't it? Um, well, when you go <laughs> deep enough into science, especially with the kind of questions you're asking, you will inevitably start crossing over into philosophy. Yeah. Because scientifically speaking, what is real? Uh, real is what we can measure with Six Sigma competence. <laughs> <laughs> That's what is real. Um, yeah. Uh, so, all right. Um, 
Now this is the question. This is um, yeah. Got one more science question, and then just to then we'll have a question to close off. Um, so another man uh, called um, I'm gonna, I don't know if I'm going to say this right either. Eric Metasas or something like that. Yes. He, um, yeah, he's a Christian. Yeah. Oh, is he? I, I actually didn't yeah. know that. Um, um, he said, yeah, he said several times that science is now increasingly looking like proving the existence of God. Um, but do you, I mean, do you think that from what you know and what you've experienced and, you know, your own story, do you think science will ever get to the point where we agree maybe without hundred necessarily 100% proof that there is some kind of external intelligence or intelligent design behind the universe and that actually the, the argument may become like who that is and what it looks like rather than whether it exists. I mean, which God? Hmm. Um, Yahweh? Which Yahweh? The Yahweh is understood by um, Judaism or Yahweh is interpreted through Christ. And how? Exactly. Which interpretation of Christ? Is yeah. that the God we're talking about finding in science? Or is it, uh, is it the great Brahman of Hinduism? Exactly. Or yeah. is it uh, the fabric of reality itself in Taoism? Is it Allah? Is it... Um, is it elevated beings who've achieved godhood as we find in Mormonism? You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. We Absolutely. all have such different ideas about God. How can we say whether science will prove God exists or not without agreeing on who or what God is? So I think science can certainly validate some ideas about God. Einstein's God, Spinoza's God, a kind of God who is the universe. Uh, well, we've already proven that with as much confidence as we can. We believe the universe exists. Um, a Yahweh who um, was the god of a, a particular patch of earth in the Middle East. I don't, I don't, I don't think science is anywhere close to proving that god. And I think both, most Christians don't believe in that god. They believe that understanding of Yahweh was a stepping stone to a better understanding of a monotheistic universal God later on that was Trinitarian, but in the same way, science is not anywhere close to proving a Trinitarian God. Right. Um, this is why I'm always careful when Christians discuss sciences, intentionally or not, they will use terms in ambiguous ways and, you know, use an argument compelling or not for, say, a prime mover, and then skip a lot of steps and say, therefore, the God of my doctrine is, is, exists. Oh, yeah. And that's, that's uh, shoddy reasoning. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, and I, I avoid it at all costs, right? The, the, I try to, I am not a scientist. I don't have a doctorate. So the only way I can earn credibility of this science mic moniker is if I am completely committed to an accurate representation of the sciences, even in cases where, you know, I might sell more books or have bigger crowds in, in my appearances if I were to fudge the science a little bit. But that would cost me 
the trust of the audience I care about the most, people who are skeptical and long to understand God more. Mm. Yeah. So I, I take that trust very, very seriously. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, I'm not... Yeah, I think when we, when we say the word God, it's a very... It can become a very ambiguous term because um, I heard Pete Rollins once talk about... Um, we need to be careful about when we talk about God that we're not talking about our conception of God because our conception of God is very different from God Himself. If there is, if you know, if there is a God, you know that He's probably big, He's much bigger. He can't be our just be our conception of Him because otherwise we're just making an idol out of out of that, and we're not and we're not looking at the real God, whoever that is. Um, yeah, and I was just thinking, you know, that if if scientists say that there is something out there that's some consciousness out there that's designed this universe, that people will start arguing about, you know, oh, that's our God, that's our God, that's our God, you know, when actually you won't be able to, you won't be able to prove which one it is, um, scientifically, yeah. So thank you, um, Mike, uh, for all of that. So fascinating. There's so much stuff we could probably talk about, um, science-wise, um, yeah, um, so thank you for sharing all that. That's my that. pleasure. Really good question. Um, oh, thank you. That's nice to hear. Um, so, okay, just a final kind of closing question. Um, you've been on this, like, on this amazing journey, you know, in, in your own life, um, finding, you know, you know, through faith and atheism and coming back to God through science and I, I suspect there's a lot of people who are doubting who are struggling with faith people who are or people who are not Christians who have some idea of spirituality but don't really have any focus for it um, what would be your word of encouragement to them isn't wrong it's only a destructive force if your posture works against it I view doubt now as a companion um, doubt is a way of testing ideas and helping me search for truth so the only reason doubt becomes something that makes us afraid or makes us suffer is when we hold on to our ideas too tightly. Mm. We work so hard to learn things. We, we, like a coal miner, go into the ground and sometimes emerge with a diamond, this thing we think of great worth, and we jealously protect it, and we hold on to it so tightly our knuckles turn white. And in that context, when you realize the diamond isn't real, <laughs> through doubt through a closer examination our heart breaks because we've lost something the illusion is it was ever ours to begin with mm. so instead of mining insights from the ground today I sit with an open hand 
and insights and truths about the world land on my hand like butterflies. And if I try to possess them, to control them, to contain them, I'll crush their delicate beauty. But if instead I just sit and receive the gift for however long it lasts and enjoy the beauty, well, not only do I learn more, but I feel better as I do. So when the wind blows and this most recent idea flutters away, I don't worry. Another will come along soon enough. God makes a terrible math problem, as Morgan Guyton says. Uh, God is not a puzzle we're meant to solve. God is not only our companion on the journey through life, but the path itself. Yeah. Even when God doesn't seem present. God is there as long as the path is there. God is there as long as the path is there. And God isn't just our companion on the on the path, he's the path itself. Yeah. I like that. That's brilliant. <laughs> That's really encouraging. Um, well, thank you Mike, for, for coming on and uh, talking about all this tonight, um, today. Uh, it's been really, really great having you back um, on the podcast. And um, wish you well with, your, with the book as well. It's really exciting. When's it coming out in the UK? I don't know the exact date. I know it's in October. Um, and I'm sure my friends at my UK publisher would be upset. I don't know the exact date yet, but uh, <laughs> so focused on the US launch September 13th that uh, I haven't shifted gears to the UK launch, although we are, cross your fingers, hopefully going to have a little uh, UK tour. Oh, awesome. Uh, so hopefully I'll hit a few cities over there. Oh, I'll keep us informed about that, and um, I'll try and uh, drop in and say hi. That'd be um, lovely. Yeah, yeah, I look forward to that. Um, so pick that up. Um, again, if you're in the US, that book's already out. If you're in the UK, pick it up on sometime in October and um, check it out. I can vouch for it. It is uh, an incredible book. So um, thank, thanks again for coming on, Mike. Um, thank you, thanks. And um, yeah, take care, everyone, and we'll talk soon.